MFs, welcome back to Hustle Like You Broke. Matthew Waltz coming at you every Tuesday and Thursday. Back today with my three co-hosts, Christine Dallas. Hello, hello. Kyle Hamilton. A overcast Tuesday, still full keto. And my brother Banks. What's going on? little brunch cocktail today. We are recording a little later than usual. I am hoping you are not three sheets to the wind, but maybe close. I've been drinking in moderation this morning. Well, we appreciate your candor. So before we introduce our guest today, I actually want to talk for a minute about the Event Safety Alliance, because we've been referencing them frequently over the last few weeks. Anybody who's been paying attention to the industry is aware of what's going on. They're aware of this move towards reopening. They're aware of these driving concerts that seem to be popping up. And um, the ESA published their reopening guide, and I commented on that recently. And I make a lot of reference to best practices and the need for more and for best practices to be truly established. I've been around this industry for almost 20 years. And and the truth is I have to claim some ignorance about the Event Safety Alliance. It's never been something that's been front and center in my world. And, And I got called out by a buddy of mine who basically said, you know, you talk about these best practices, you really should read up on the ESA because they have published a guidebook that's 350 plus pages long covering you know the gamut in 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 event safety and event management and venues and and what would largely be considered best practices and frankly that got me thinking that I don't know how it's possible, perhaps it's my own ignorance that I got this far, but why have I been able to tour without promoters and agents talking to me about this guidebook or best practices? Why is it that my insurance agent, when I renew, doesn't reference anything relating to best practices or certification or level of education in the concert industry. And and it got me thinking, you know, is this this guidebook a representation of best practices? Or or is it really just like good intentions or nice thoughts or something like that? And, And why? Why aren't we talking more? Why aren't we talking about these best practices? So I just want to put that out there and preface today's podcast with that thought because we are actually having Jim Jim Digby, excuse me, Jim Digby from the ESA on our next podcast after today's. And um, I'm enthusiastic to hear what he has to say. I am hoping that he can enlighten me as well as our listeners. And, And I know that the ESA is a force in trying to enact these best practices throughout the industry. And certainly I am hugely supportive of those efforts and and enthusiastic about seeing where all of this goes coming out so that we can have a better, stronger, safer music industry. And um, 
and there it is. So with that said, today we're actually focusing on the creative side of the concert industry. We've talked a lot about technology with recent guests. We've talked a lot about the evolution of the industry. We've talked about audio. We've talked about lighting. We've talked about video, but we've never talked to a creative directly. And, and today we've got a great one. Very happy to have him here with us. Um, the first time I worked with him, I was on the shop with the owner of one of the major automation and fabrication shops in this industry. Um, and I won't say who it is, but uh, I will say that when he heard that this gentleman was going to be involved, he basically said, you're very fortunate to have the best and brightest the future of creative design in the concert industry. And, um, and, 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 and I found that to be the case. So I'm very enthusiastic to be introducing him. Corey Fitzgerald has worked with everyone from Beyonce to J-Lo to Janet to Kendrick to Bruno to Kanye to Gaga to, if they've got one name, Madonna, the list goes on and on, then Corey's probably worked with them. So Corey Fitzgerald, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. That's a very kind introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, and I appreciate working with you as well, all of you. And I should add... I would be remiss not to say that while all of you out there cannot smell Corey, it was pointed out to me when I first met him that he actually is a very nice smelling gentleman as well. I mean, not much I can do about that. I'm sorry to say. I think there is. I, I think that actually it is one of those things that you do. It's, it's, it's part of your allure. Well, you know, you got to keep him coming back. So any way you can. Well, anything to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and we appreciate, appreciate you very much. So uh, there it is. So, Corey, again, I've, I've told a decent amount about you already, but if, if you don't mind, take us back to the humble beginnings of one Mr. Corey Fitzgerald. I do believe or understand you went to NYU. I'm not sure if you're from New York, if you're from the L.A. area. Um, tell us about yourself. Well, uh, I grew up, uh, born in New York, grew up there, and then moved to L.A. around uh, 9, 10 years old and kind of bounced back and forth for family reasons, but um, kind of grew up in the in the theater, uh, in the theater world. My parents were in the restaurant business, but always went to the theater and kind of hung out in that general area. Um, and then when I was in California as a young kid, I started going to summer theater camp, but I didn't want to be an actor. So I made friends with the stage crew and a friend of mine. Uh, named James Shipper, who now owns Kinetic Lighting, uh, offered to let me help him with that and kind of run follow spot and learn how to do a bunch of things there. And I kind of caught the bug uh, and started working at um, my high school theater, you know, the middle school AV club, uh, anything I could do to get into, you know, sort of nerdy technology and, and, and that side of things. Uh, then I started working at a shop when I was 16, uh, worked there throughout high school. And then, yeah, I went to NYU, moved back to New York. Uh, started working full time and interning at wherever I could, various different companies. Um, I started, ended up graduating, working for a company called High End Systems, which manufactured moving lights and control systems, and became sort of focused on the control end of side. So programming, working with Broadway designers, programmers, uh, doing support and training, and then branching out into other types of uh, shows, uh, doing the support side and teaching people consoles. And then I sort of left there to go be. Free uh, programmer 
uh, doing programming previs, all that kind of stuff for a variety of types of shows. Again, Broadway, off-Broadway, corporate, industrial, TV a little bit, and then kind of broke into concerts uh, around 2006. Um, and then kind of that's where I figured my life kind of changed and sort of decided that that's really where I wanted to be. I just, everything clicked and made sense. I'd always been a musician. So uh, kind of being able to just light and program music uh, freely without sort of having to worry about, you know, the theatricality of, of where people were standing or, or the light and the shadow of a dynamic moment based on the audience perspective. It was really about the uh, environment and the, the musicality of each look and each hit and how all that played together. Uh, also combining it with my sort of theatrical past and, and training and stuff. So it kind of clicked uh, and I've kind of been doing it ever since. So about 15 years now, kind of full-time touring concert stuff, um, programming a lot, went on the road for a couple of years uh, and, and kind of bounced between different gigs. Uh, I did Lady Gaga's first Monster Ball tour um, for about a year and then uh, did a couple other smaller shows and then was introduced to a guy, um, a friend of mine who was the uh, tour manager for the opening act for Gaga show, Semi Precious Weapons, uh, Sean Hoffman, uh, who then said, do you want to meet with this guy named Bruno Mars, who's a sort of uh, Hawaiian guy coming out of uh, younger, uh, new up and comer. And uh, I said, sure. And then kind of started working with him for the last 10 years. Uh, and the rest is sort of history, I guess. Not a bad place to start. It's a short, I, it's a short version, yeah. I will say, my AV guy in high school, first of all, the department was one person. <laughs> I, I don't know if there was a club, but you couldn't have caught me with a 10-foot pole anywhere near this guy. He was 70 years old. He moved like a, a, like a turtle from room to room. If you were waiting on him to get a presentation started or something, you were waiting a long time. It, it is hard for me to imagine starting there and being where you are today. Uh, well, you know, every every road has its uh, every journey has its roads. I don't know, um, but it's it definitely wasn't. You know, I, I think as I'm learning today in in these sort of changing times, I, I wasn't I didn't always set out to do this. Uh, I just loved what I was doing at the time, and it kind of led to you know one foot in front of the other. So there was always more to be done and more to be had. And I was you know people often ask me like, well, what what was the biggest decision, or how did you get there, or what was the best opportunity? And it's like really just being in the right place at the right time and being lucky, you know, getting, getting a call from the right person at the right moment to do the right job that kind of opened your eyes or opened another opportunity or introduced you to the right person. Um, it's all kind of can the, the universe has a way of sort of connecting all these things, I think. And it's been very fortunate and I'm very, uh, very glad it happened, but it was definitely a series of events. And did I hear you say every journey has its roads? Uh, yeah, I was fumbling, so I'm not used to being, you know, recorded like this. Uh, no, that that was a good play on Bet Brett Michaels. I was I was imagining Poison covering your mm -hmm. rendition of "Every Journey Has Its Roads." That was that was pretty good. Can you sing us a couple bars? No, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, I was trying to picture then what what you said. You're a musician, and I and I didn't know that about you either. And and. I, I'm trying to run through my head, and I'm picturing, and, and and I've narrowed it down to four. So I want you to tell me how far off base I was. Okay. Now, one of me wants to say singer because I can picture you being in the chorus as a young as a young lad, but uh, I'm not so sure about that one. I, I picture you perhaps behind the cello. 
Um, I, I also picture you maybe playing the clarinet, which led me to sax. Hmm. How'd I do? Uh, well, surprisingly, you got one out of three. But uh, but I would say the original journey was piano, uh, then clarinet, then guitar, bass, and then drums. But for some reason, clarinet was in there, and I don't remember why. Hmm. I suppose I should have said something about piano. Yeah, it's usually a good place to start. Were you one of those like three-year-old pianists going to recitals with your parents? As, as a I, I want to say I want to say four, but I was no Mozart. Let's put it that way. It was a hobby. How about that? So you started out designing for Bruno, you say, but what I learned before this call, and this is totally my own ignorance, is that I, I, I don't know you as a touring guy. I know you as a designer and I know you as a programmer and I'd seen, you know, your backstory. But as it turns out, I'm the one on this call who's, who's most deprived or, or perhaps the most fortunate in that I'm the only one among our podcasters today that has not actually toured with you. Tell, tell us a you little bit about that. for that. <laughs> I suck for that? Yes. I mean, you're missing I out. I will not be blessed with Mr. Fitzgerald's presence. <laughs> I'll second that. I feel I am. I'm I definitely blatant disrespectful, sir. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean to be disrespectful. You know that about me. With all due respect. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, I don't know what the fuck any of that just means, but Corey, please. Or Kyle, since you seem to uh, want to jerk Corey's chain a little bit, why don't you tell us about Corey's touring experience i can't tell you about his experience because you don't see him (laughs) he just shows up miraculous miraculously in the late afternoon later than you uh about a tie maybe but uh he just shows up like i just show up and you know we do what we do but uh You, you, you did actually make reference to a term i had not heard before uh, on, on, on before uh, we started, now now we were talking about you as the white glove motherfucker that you are that we know. Of course, of course. No, in love, no question. And and Corey, I mean, if you've listened to our podcasts, you know you know that Kyle and Chris are big time white glovers, and I mean I love them to death for it. But of course, embrace it. You have to embrace it. <laughs> but Where I do enjoy honor. There's a, lot of hate. There's a lot of hate to people like us. That's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, like the people who actually work for a living, they 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 really don't appreciate that y'all just kind of stroll in late in the day and they're like, hey, is everything all set up for us? Ah, blah, blah, blah. What, you want, what you fail to realize is there's a lot, a lot of after work that happens as well. Blah, know, blah, file blah. file <laughs> management. And not only that, I mean... You know, just because we may have chosen a different path that affords us the glovage, you know, you can't you can't hate on that. Everybody's out is afforded the same opportunities. It might if you take it take advantage of it. I see. So other people have simply not Hold taken on. advantage of it. I just want to throw in there back a house. We don't really have those options, just you know, not to be uh, there's no really white gloving back there when you do what, like backstage work. It depends on, on how you, you know, maneuver your uh set up your deal but it's very plausible. thank you Dallas. 
Thank you, though. I appreciate Dallas chiming in there because Dallas is is a woman who knows a little something about working for a living. So and, and are you saying when you have, on, you have, so when you wear gloves, you don't work? I mean, it might be what I'm implying. I don't know. Dallas, back me up. What do you, what do you think? Do, do they work? They absolutely work. But oh, you can't play both sides, Dallas. That's I mean, bullshit. I do respect the white glovers. I mean, you, you you know, most have earned it. Not all, but most have. And we know who those are, so we give them their respect. Well, now I'm just offended. This is a bunch of bullshit. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway. No, but, but getting back to Mr. Fitzgerald, he has a different kind of glove. And that's what I was leading to. Please, uh, what kind of glove is Corey Has reached a certain level of um, the platinum level, which <laughs> is very few in this industry. He He's close to like his own tour bus kind of level. So, really? you know, with that being said, I just have to, you know, bow down and give all much respect to Mr. Fitzgerald because uh, the the few times that I've worked with him, especially when we worked on the um, Unbreakable tour with Janet, it was uh, it was just an honor just to be in his presence. Well, I mean, the honor is all mine. I, I truly appreciate it. It's, See how uh, he just accepted it? I love it. That's what I'm talking about. That personal tour. You have a jet you're on plane to? Uh, no, no. I mean, some of the cost these days, I mean, why, why bother? You know? Nowhere to go and all. So, exactly. All that, all those seats and no one to go with, you know, it's just, why bother? So basically your security every day on this unbreakable tour was, was looking in advance at the, the venue cad for the next day and thinking, okay, where can we put Janet's A party bus? And where can we put Corey's bus? And then everybody else can go like outside the lot down the road, what have you. This is this is correct? I, I mean, I, I like to think of him more like a hotel kind of guy. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a shuttle bus, you know, at least back and forth. It's a private entrance. Yeah, no, none, none of any of that. That's, that's nonsense. <laughs> ah, private jet to the venue, to the hoodie. Exactly. PJs and hoodies all day long. Got it. That's right. This guy. Do you, do you know something about terry cloth robes and leather slippers by chance? It's not really my style. I'm more of a hoodie and converse kind of guy, but you know, it seems nice. Do you refresh your hoodie in a jasmine bag? Chris, what am I talking about now? It's a enclosure that basically uh, provides a special scent for your bathrobe or your pillow so that you're infused with whatever scent is to your liking. I prefer eucalyptus myself. Mm, very refreshing. Very refreshing. Is this what you use as well, Corey? Uh, I mean, do I have a eucalyptus diffuser in my house? Possibly. Uh, but uh, do I have other fragrances I enjoy? Yes. Pine needles. Diffuser on the road to at front of house with you? Uh, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. We, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah Davy Davey, introduced us to that. And now there's little USB ones that are very refreshing. So do you have any kind of uh, altar at front of house when you work? Uh, no, I am very much a minimalist person. I know people who do. They shall remain nameless. But um, I, I think there's a, a, a certain amount of um, what what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, Je ne sais quoi exactly that comes with it. The I don't know what, um, but the the yeah people get comfortable. They have a tradition, a routine, uh, certainly ambiance to make them feel comfortable. 
I, I typically come in and out of things so quickly now where I, now that I've kind of gone into the programming or just designing or overseeing or creative directing that I kind of come in, do the thing and leave. And so there really is not a lot of sense of bringing a lot of stuff with me, but um, you know, I'm a pretty simple guy when it comes down to it. I just want to throw out that it's just us here. You can feel to throw out any names, you know, throw anybody under the bus that you want. Uh, we, we won't tell anybody, I promise. Oh, sure. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> On another question, Corey, slightly more um, serious level here. Curious, you know, if you're coming up, having the, the fortune of getting an internship and being able to really get a, a like a, a view of this business from an early um perspective where some of us haven't had that opportunity. Um, as you grow now and where you are now, how much of what you do is your own creativity or is it manipulating somebody else's ideas and delivering something to them? Um, I mean, I think I, I answer this a lot the same way. Like every artist and every relationship is a lot different. So some people come to the table you know, very visually gifted as musicians. Um, I mean, I'll talk about musicians specifically, but like some people have a very good visual sense. Some people have an idea that it's just, I love this reference and I want something like this, but not this. Um, sometimes they'll say, what do you think I should do? Uh, and, and have a kind of more of a blank page approach. And I think I've, I've noticed that that changes a bit with experience. So younger artists tend to be a little more influence, influenceable about uh, what they want to do and, and may not understand what's possible. So it's easier to sort of suggest a few things and kind of see what road to go down. Um, but that's not always true. Some people come out of a creative design or arts background where they learned how to draw at an early age and they can be very specific about stuff. So um, it really depends. I think we're often also operating within constraints, whether it's, you know, this is a festival run, this is an arena tour, a stadium tour, uh, an award show performance, a late night show performance, a music video, everything has its own limitations coupled with time and budget. So, you know, we, we can build a physical structure inside of a size of a room. That's everything you've ever wanted it to be, but we don't have enough time and we definitely don't have enough budget. So what can we do that's like that or half of that or has half the ideas? Uh, and that's really where, where I think the design portion of it comes into it. You're not necessarily reinventing how light works or what video screens do or how great content can be this week or this new AR technology or, you know, you, we want to go a zip line and fly around the whole arena. Like it's more about finessing all of those options in the world into what this show and what this idea needs to be. And, and then honing it down to say, well, this is really the most important part. And this is the story we want to tell. Uh, and that I think the background of, of not only design and theater and, and learning about that process on a much smaller level, as I've come to find out, um, is really helpful in sort of interpreting those things, but also, I think grow, growing up into those different levels and seeing and learning and, and watching other people do it, you know, watching other designers deal with artists, watching them do it well, do it poorly, um, watching them deal with production managers, watching them deal with uh, the audio team, or the uh, visual, visuals team, and, and see how those conversations go and where to put emphasis and, and pick your battles and say, well, we really need this to work, you know, to make the whole show look correctly, but it's getting in the way of the side fills or something like that. And, I mean, those are small examples, but that's those processes. It's more about how you deal with things than necessarily um, what uh, what your demands are or what you're what you're focusing on at the time. And it's all one big picture. So, like looking at all those things at the same time and knowing where you want it to go in the end, 
you sort of need to sort of quickly use all that experience in a real-time way to kind of make decisions and make conversations go well. Um, and then I'll try to do it with a sense of humor. So that's kind of that's kind of my long answer. That was that was a good answer, actually. I and I want to stay on this for a second because I I struggle with the concept of creative design and creative designers sometimes. Because I find, and you know me, I'm just a fucking asshole, so I'm going to say things that are just highly rude and inflammatory here. But I find that so many creative designers are are little more than what I call pretty picture makers. And you seem to be taking a much more comprehensive approach to the overall production rollout plan and, and the many facets that are involved in and bringing a creative process to life. So walk us through that a little bit more, if you don't mind. I mean, tell us a little more about, again, take, be it an artist that has some idea of where they want it to go or not. I mean, tell us a little more about these considerations, where it starts, how it evolves, and, and where it goes in the best case scenario. Um, I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's tricky, right? And there's definitely some people out there without that level of experience, or just or and, and they have creative and great ideas um, that don't necessarily know how to implement them, or bring bring other people, even including myself, in to help implement them. Um, so there isn't really a right or wrong way to do the situation uh, overall. It's just I think those experiences build upon themselves to teach you what, what worked, what didn't work. And that's part of the job is learning from those, um, learning from people who've done it before you, um, learning to take advice, learning to talk to the vendors about what they think is possible in the amount of time. Um, and, and I've certainly seen a rise, you know, probably starting about 10, 12 years ago of people coming to the table with, you know, a little bit of show experience, but a lot of great ideas. Um, and you've seen sort of who's made success and got traction and maintained uh, or shifted into different positions, you know, whether it's video directors, creative directors, creative producers, um, and where they sort of find that, that niche that they, that they work really well doing. Um, but it's definitely, you have to find the kind of right combination of people. And what we always try to do is, you know, talk about, you know, um, facilitating it, right? You can't just have a good idea. You have to be able to make it or make it happen or make something like it happen. Um, and a lot of times I find people get sort of into the mode of just thinking outside the box and, and anything's possible. And you, you know, you go away for six months and you see the tour, you know, in another city and you're like, wow, that, that really didn't work. <laughs> you know, like that, I see what they were doing and what they're trying to do. And for whatever reason, not being part of those discussions, whether it's budget, time, um, you know, a variety of different things, constraints, uh some things just don't work out the way they do and then sometimes you see the opposite you see some really interesting ideas that sort of came out of nowhere or from someone you've never heard of and like wow that's like a really inventive way to do that or and maybe they did that because they had to fit it into a trailer and that's all they could afford to 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 take with them on the road but they used it in such a new way that it really turns it around and makes it interesting um so there's no right or wrong way to do it and there is no you know, hard and fast rule to get into this business. And there's no prerequisite for what you have to be able to do. But I think looking at, um, you know, the shows you see and, and want to be a part of and what you like about them, what you don't like about them, what you might want to change, what you might want to ask questions about, uh, all that stuff kind of helps, uh, I think, inform the, uh, the participants as well as the people who are actually seeing the show, you know, the audience. 
what 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 went into that and it's usually a lot more than you think even if it's a very simple idea so let me ask you with chris and kyle on on this podcast with us and as audio guys uh, i'm sure they want to know do you care about the audio do you consider the audio in your designs absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) i mean well, right now, he like, hell no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I say this knowing that it has come back after my early years to bite me of just sort of forgetting it or not really considering it and the like, oh, we can make a really cool shape. Um, and you can't. So, yes, there's definitely been, um, you know, more focus on. When we start a show, we know it's going to be an arena tour. We know we're going to need roughly these size speakers and roughly this location. And, you know, I started getting in a habit of just drawing a big box because I knew that that was going to be, you know, whatever it looked like was going to kind of go there to kind of keep me aware that was going to happen. Uh, I certainly didn't do that in the beginning. Um, but the more you kind of deal with that, particularly in stadiums, particularly, you know, with, a, I guess, a festival or something like Coachella, you know, you want these pretty pictures. You want these really pristine looks. Um, and audio comes in and screws it up every time. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. Um, but they, it, it has to be though. I mean, you're, you're there to see the live show and you've got to hear the live show and it's got to sound great. So w- what do you do um, to sort of make that visually interesting? Um, and a lot of the things you've been working on, you know, in the last couple of years uh, moving forward is sort of incorporating that into the room. Um, you know, are, can we paint all the speakers the same color? Can we, uh, hide them within some kind of scenic baffling without affecting the sound. You know, usually the answers are no, or it's too expensive. Um, but we try to do a lot of things that that make that make a lot more sense. Um, but uh, you know, we try. I mean, the same the same sort of goes true with uh, with video and iMac a little bit, but mostly like projection. Anytime you want to use something that's a little bit more complicated and requires certain things, you really got to lay it out ahead of time because you're eating up space in front of house, or you know, if we're we're doing a gag that require if, if the front of house positions are split or we're doing some kind of B stage, there's always a lot of questions um, and have to do with that, especially uh, having, you know, unfortunately not gotten to do the show, but the, um, the Rage Against the Machine tour that was about to start was a lot of questions because they weren't going to use in-ears and then they were going to use in-ears. And I don't really know how that ended up because I'm not in that department, but that was a big question of, do we have wedges all over the stage? I haven't had wedges all over the stage in a long time. Where do we want to put them? How do they look? Does anybody care? Is it a punk rock show? Like those, those are questions that, you know, are again, specific to the band, but certainly revolve around audio and, and making it sound right, not only to them playing, but, you know, of course, to the audience. So it is definitely a huge thing to keep in mind if you don't, which I'm trying to be better of. And I'm sorry if I've done anything to you in the past, which I'm sorry for. So it sounds like you acknowledge, though, that audio is a detriment to your process. Is that right? I mean, it's not a detriment, but it's a it's a consider it's one of those constraints you need to you know always be aware of I think and uh, and you know you get back and forth especially in you know again stadiums three sixty anything that's like really complicated or um, a, a bigger situation it's just a thing that's gonna have to be there um, and you have to you have to make sure you account for it visually I know a lot of like famous U two designs and Pop Mart and all that kind of stuff really like incorporated that into the set and that became a really good thing. Now, whether it sounded good, I don't know. I wasn't there, but it, it looked good. And, you know, that, I think those kind of collaborations are really important to kind of make something new. Um, it doesn't just look like a festival stage with a bunch of speakers hanging on the side. So hopefully. 
I see. And, and one more question along these same lines. Would you agree that when you're looking through a budget and you're trying to figure out the optimal design and presentation, the first area that gets cut is going to be the audio? Um, I mean, no, I guess. Uh, do I, th I mean, I don't, I mean, you guys tell me more so than I would know, but I, I mean, audio to me seems like a fixed cost as far as we need this many speakers at this such and such a place at this such and such a type. And that's kind of, you don't really have a lot of flexibility there unless someone wants to make a, you know, brand change or. I think that was in the past. Now, since visual is everything, I think audio is always the first thing cut. Hmm. I think we're the, the second thought. I think Corey is always the first thought, you know? As far as creative and and set and lighting and video, you they start with you first now. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, for sure, there's definitely like, what is the aesthetic? What is the look of the show? Um, and I know, I mean, we go back and forth all the time with gear and, and costs, you know, trying to bring things down as much as we can. Uh, and usually... The, well, well, where we get into a sort of um, event horizon where you get the show you want rendered and looking great and then okay we got to cut like half the lighting costs and then you change a bunch of stuff change video screens whatever re-render it it's like well it doesn't look as good as it did before it's like well yeah because we had to cut half the stuff out uh and then it's like well i don't like this anymore let's come up with a new idea that fits in the budget and then you sort of start from a blank page again um so i definitely think there's there's the the loop of creative design that's you know starts with that and everyone you know the first question out of anyone's mouth is how much does it cost um but you know i don't i don't know yeah everything everything always wants to get cut down so we'll i'm not sure <laughs> where that ever ends because uh we've also been a part of projects where in between each leg they want to cut it down and but by the time you end up you're like sitting back at a bus in a trailer wondering whatever happened to all your video content so Chris, Kyle, I mean, I just got to ask you guys now, like if we were to have like a cage match tomorrow, would, would Corey be your adversary? Or are you trying to fight him here or what? Actually, the person who we want to fight is the one with the, who's writing the checks. <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> because at the end of the day, you know, he's just doing what he's asked to do. But unfortunately, it always realistically infringes on our world and makes our world difficult because this is in the way can you move this can you put that here can you put this there and then you're like okay well nobody's gonna hear that over there well can you do this no well it has to be done make it happen all right and so we just get our hand we get, end up um having to paint up a castle with a hole in the canvas so it makes our world that much more difficult but again in reverse it goes back to the person signing the writing the check so he's just the messenger per se well, that's very disappointing. And, and I don't fully, I mean, I understand exactly what you mean by that, but it seems counterproductive to try and fight the person who's paying you. Um, yeah, so trying to throw up some controversy here. Help me out. No, I, 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 think, I think it's just how the industry has shifted. I mean, you know, the year, the, the days of just having a band on stage, just playing a show with a couple of lights and some iMag are gone. You know, the, the concert experience went to the next level and it was all about how do you charge more where you have to give people a better show. You know, it has to be bigger. It has to be brighter. It has to be more grand. So 
the visual aspect has definitely trumped how sound and audio and where they fit in, which is understandable because we all have to get paid. You know, <laughs> we're all out there to make money and more money. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a, a point of finger and pointing and blaming. It's it's all about where the industry has gone and what's progressed. Fair enough. So, Corey, let's talk about the next level, as Chris just mentioned. Certainly, technology has caused many advancements, resulted in many advancements, and the visual, the optics have been much more uh, important to the entertainment value in the show. And, and certainly technology plays a role in that. And so as a creative, you know, what, what do you see coming down the pipes? We, we talked to Ian Simon recently about uh, some XR uh, technology, you know, advancements in virtual and uh, augmented reality, extended reality, et cetera. How do you see that factoring into the next wave of concert production? <clears throat> I mean, I think I think it has to, and it, and it certainly will. I mean, the, the incorporating of AR stuff has already happened with the last BTS tour and a couple other things, you know, where you can see augmented reality in the iMag. Um, I know um, everyone's been talking about it, XR, AR, VR, everything like that. I mean, I, I this current situation is only going to um, increase the timeline or shorten the timeline, I guess you should say, on when all that stuff is going to be relevant and ready to go. So the technology that was about six to eighteen months away is gonna is starting to be used, you know, last week, um, and it, and it's rough, you know, and that's I think from a manufacturer's perspective, people we've been talking to are certainly excited and they and they want to get involved and they say that you know we're pushing things farther than they expected it to be done and, and that's good. That's when it's exciting again for them because they can kind of figure out how to how to get it ahead of where it needs to go. Um, but we've definitely never seen anything like this where you know, without an audience, you know, we're trying to find out ways to create these live entertainment experiences and, and it's going to push things way farther than it can be. Um, I also think, you know, we're going to be seeing, we've seen a trend, as you guys were saying, about, you know, one upsmanship and trying to do the best thing and using new technology before anybody else does, because as soon as it's used, you know, there are only a few other people that would want to, you know, try to use it differently or feel like it's already been overused. Um, so these these companies are, are competing with each other to outdo one another and eventually we're, we've gotten to a sort of point where you know everybody's got a very similar product uh that can all do very complicated things um but it's it's down to the creativity and how how it gets used and and what the show looks like and how the person interacts and how does it feel re real time or is it canned or what is the uh, artist interaction the audience interaction and now that we're sort of virtual that that's you know tenfold more complicated to figure out um, but the, I, I think it's going to continue to an extent. I also think we're going to see personally a wave of kind of going away from that where you're getting back to, uh, more traditional, uh, concerts, if you will, where it's, it's more focusing on the music. I certainly hope so. Um, I think the, you know, I know we're not, I don't want to bog down in too many of my crazy harebrained theories, but the financial models, you know, being what they're going to become, I think we're going to want to see a lot more interesting uses of less technology and less over the top expansion and more about like, here's the performance. I'm a singer. Let me sing. I'm a musician. Let me play. I'm a dancer. Let me dance and, and, and really focus the, the, the person's experience on that. We've, we've, we've grown and grown and grown to, you know, trying to make every show a Super Bowl, And, uh, you know, I think it's going to, 
we're going to want that human experience and, and not seeing a little tiny ant with a giant projection or, or LED screen. We're going to want to feel close and feel intimate and feel that the music's live and it's being you know performed uh, for us. And I think that's, I think to me, I hope that's kind of a, a mental space we all get into. Um, I certainly at this point would rather go see a show at a club versus a stadium uh, on a personal level, but that's just because I feel like that connection is a lot more relevant in these days. Um, so, so we'll see. I mean, I, I think the, 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 the technology is there um, and, and the people are there that want to see it. It's just a question of, of making it work in a mass scale or, you know, setting up, um, setting up a big over the top show that people can come to and want to come to. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what sort of develops, but it's still going. I mean, people are still developing new products and new ways to use it. Um, especially over the internet, which is going to be a whole new thing. I mean, AR and VR alone are going to sort of change the way we see concerts as, as well as when we're seeing them live. I mean, YouTube did a little bit of stuff with the AR. Um, a lot of bands have done different ways of using it. And I think, it, again, it's the creativity on how you spark that and make them new and interesting and, and make me want to use that or make me want to watch something through my phone that makes me feel like I'm really interacting with it is, uh, is going to be challenging. What's funny, I, I was I was going to ask you if it's the creative or the artist that introduces, you know, whether or not to bring in the the XR elements, but then you started talking about things going back to basics and it is an interesting duality, right? We've got the technology to do any number of new and different things that no one's ever seen before. And then there's this this drive for I don't know if the word is authenticity, where it's just the artist and their songs, you know, the band on stage doing what they do without, you know, quote unquote distraction, um, for lack of a better term. But but then you're talking about using technology to create a minimalist approach, which just presents so many different ideas i'm not sure where to go with that frankly no i, th I think it's two different things you know in a way i mean you're going to see people and audiences wanting a more uh you know i think music heavy show new songs songs about topical things i think pop music's going to going to shift a little bit towards you know you can't really can can't really talk about life anymore without confronting the the situation we're in so you know, you also want to feel good about stuff. So you don't want to be talking about, you know, the downtimes, but you want to be entertained and you want to feel hope and all those things. I, I, I think it's a cultural thing and, and we'll see it. And I think it's going to be good and positive. It's just a, uh, it's, we want to be entertained and we want to talk about the positive things that are happening and hear new songs about hope and the future. And I, I think all that stuff is going to make us really, um, a better society overall. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of people out there trying to figure out how to connect with their audience again and, and how the audience can connect back with them. Um, so it's, it's a bigger question than just, you know, live shows, but I think that that's, it's a, it's a definitely interesting time to see where certain people go and, and uh, the audience, what the audience is really craving. So looking to the future and trying to figure out the best way to come back from this and trying to understand not only the artist's desire, but the audience's desire, the audience's experience. I mean, where do you see things going in terms of, uh, you know, the reopening of concerts? How do, you, how do you feel, I guess, first about the concept of, of 
one, drive-in shows and whether you've had any any involvement in that. And two, how do you feel about the, the reopening, you know, uh, in, with distancing measures in place and, and how that's going to affect the overall creative process? Uh, I mean, you want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> oh. Uh, no, I I think it's going to be very interesting to see. I, I mean, no one really knows what's going to happen, even if they tell you they do. Um, we'll see in the next few weeks, as we've said for the last two months, you know, what these measures and, and opening up things start to do. Um, I think we should all very much rely on our, you know, safety science officers and, you know, state and local governments to kind of say what, what, what they think they should do. But I think as an industry, it's going to be interesting um, to see what's possible because, you know, a lot of the articles I've read and people I've talked to, it, you know, the capacity issues for restaurants, for you know, bars, nightclubs, venues, uh, stadiums, you know, are, are really prohibitive for, you know, the cost models that have been in place for a long time. So I think I think, not create creatively, but I think on the gear side, it will suffer, and you know, rehearsal side, and a lot of the things that make these spectacle shows so much bigger and 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 amazing, and and you know larger than life is is we're gonna have to start cutting that back because we're not going to be able to sell enough tickets or over enough time um which is the bad news um, but i think it opens up a new area of of creativity on how to do things at that scale i mean the drive-in thing is i think a pretty good an interesting idea um i think it'll suffer some of the same financial questions of of what makes sense what does that ticket include um you know how do you do can you do virtual meet and greets can you do uh you know recordings of the songs uh, recordings of the live shows you know per night so that there's some connection there i think there's a lot of ideas being floated around um to sort of look at that model i know some have been tried in europe and people are trying them here uh but it'll be interesting to see i think what that does um overall it's just the, the scarier part for me is the is the traditional way we've looked at the venues you know uh, in, in the capitalistic idea of all, all these economies were working at their maximum, you know, and if we come back and say, okay, you can do the same thing, but you have to do it at a third capacity, it doesn't really make sense. Like the the back end doesn't make sense with the front end. Um, so we have to sort of wait and see, I think, when we can get back up to that. And obviously, you know, if we talk vaccine treatments and, and people are far more comfortable and the government starts opening back up, I think there'll be a rampant, you know, uh, uh, cr- craziness about trying to get all the shows back up at once because there was a lot of shows mid tour, starting tour, you know, we had shows in the gate programmed ready to go um, that are, are ready to go as soon as we get dates booked. But I think it'll be, it'll be very closely watched on how those things go. And once that does start, you know, just watching it again to see that it's safe and people want to go and um, feel comfortable. I think venues are going to need to undergo quite a bit of, you know, updating, as far as access points and health and safety. And I'm sure there'll be rules for that. And that's why everyone's put that on the back of the list to say, we'll get to that once you've established, we can make everything else safe. Um, but, you know, I'm hopeful, very hopeful. <laughs> Cause I think that's how all of us, you know, make our money. So it'll be interesting to see what, what eventually develops. So we opened today's podcast talking about best practices or I did at least. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on any additional best practices that should be considered coming, you know, as the industry comes back, when it comes back, assuming it comes back to some fully formed concept that, you know, 
includes a, a large-scale gatherings in the relative near future, I hope. A any thoughts? Um, I mean, first of all, I don't want to be too negative. I mean, I, I had a, was listening to a great um, podcast of a medical expert who I can't remember the name of, but they were like, you know, theaters came back after the Spanish flu, <laughs> uh, you know, nightclubs, bars came back. We've lived through these things before, and we will develop a way to go back to a socialized, normal life. Um, how long it takes might be debatable, but I, I think I have no doubt that we're going to get back to something that we recognize as what we used to. It's just going to feel and look a little different. And we're never, we as this generation are never going to forget this moment. So I think that'll be interesting also to see as people develop. I think safe practices in our business, you know, besides the obvious of, you know, washing your hands and uh, not coughing on people, um, I think just take, hands. <laughs> taking, uh, hands. taking help in Flat general. I mean, a lot of, that's right. How do you keep them clean? Keep them platinum. Um, the, uh, the the health and safety in general, I think, is, is you know, our lifestyle choices have not been the greatest, uh, certainly mine uh, alone. But the keeping mental health is a huge thing. Um, sleep is a huge thing. This is, I hope, hopefully this break has sort of showed a lot of people that life, you know, can be more than just about uh, doing the show, staying up all night, getting on the bus, drinking till you fall asleep, and doing it all again the next day. Not that I ever did that that much, but um, the uh, I think it's going to be help, helpful overall for everyone to kind of take a step back and look at um, what they're doing. A lot of people are looking at other ideas of careers, or do they want to go back to this if it comes back? I mean, I've had a lot of interesting conversations with people who I think are confronted with this, you know, this disruption that they were never expecting, and it's kind of opened. A lot of doors to say, oh, maybe maybe there's other things I want to do. Maybe I want to teach. Maybe I want to farm. I don't know. Like, there's a lot of uh, really interesting opportunities out there, and a lot of us have been doing this so long and so fast. Um, we don't really remember any other way. So, um, I think coming back is a good good practice to kind of keep everybody safe, keep everybody on a good schedule. Where we've been trying to cram as much information and time, you know, that we can we can get going at the same time. But uh, I think hopefully that's you know given us a little bit of a breath to think about it hey, Corey, i had a question do you in your conversations and models and different things that you guys have talked about with your clients have you guys considered the consumer and what the consumer will be prepared to pay for at the end of the day i mean you mentioned ar and vr and different things like that i was just curious about in this current state that we're in and how devastating it's been to a lot of people do we consider what the person who goes to a concert will be able to afford, you know, once this is all said and done. A hundred percent. I mean, that's a huge component of it. I mean, if you, if you look at the, the math models of, you know, what it, what a ticket costs and what it gets you now and what those production costs are amortized out over however many shows in so many cities with so many tickets being sold and you start chopping those, you know, if you just say chop them in half, um, you know, and then the people coming in, you, you can't offset that. You can't say, well, I'm going to have a thousand person venue with 500 people or 25 people, whatever the allowance is, excuse me. Um, and then say, well, I'm gonna, we're going to charge those 25 people a hundred times more than they normally would have cost to make up the difference. Um, it, it just won't work that way. So I think the, the input and the output are going to have to level off very quickly. Uh, and, and that's why I, I think returning to a more traditional or, um, you know, I loved my idea a couple of weeks ago of, you know, the supergroup model or the, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, uh, Jingle Ball style festival model of like a lot of A-level talents making a big show in various cities all the time. 
because you'll be able to share a lot of those costs and it becomes more about the performance, the music, uh, the camaraderie. Everyone gets to see a lot of their favorite artists at the same time. Um, so I think those types of things will become more feasible uh, as we get closer and closer to reopening. Um, you also, you know, you have less crew, you have less load-ins, you can keep it set up for a couple of weeks. There's, there's a lot of different ideas, you know, not just that I've had, but floating around um, that I think will get worked out. Uh, but it's definitely going to change the way we can pay for and, and do these shows. And it's going to have to be consumable. So the people coming to it have to be able to afford it. Um, and I think they'll want to. Uh, but that's definitely a reality of, of where we should be looking and, and keeping that in mind as we, just like everything, seeing the seeing the whole picture before we sort of make final decisions about what we want to do on either end. Do you think artists will be willing to take less money to do more of those festival style, radio style, jingle ball style events? I mean, I don't want to speak for them, so it's very very hard to say. I, I my my suspicion is there will be opportunities to do stuff like that, and people can choose whether or not they want to or can per, per, you know partake. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I have no one is, that's not like a real thing that's happened. It's just in my head, that would be an easier financial model to sort of support um, than doing your, you know, the startup costs alone might not justify the ticket sales. So it's very hard to look at a, a show on the long run like that and say, you know, we'll definitely make our money back if we get into this uh, and spend a hundred, Two million, fifteen million, whatever dollars it's going to cost to get the show we want. Um, it might take us five years to make that back, as opposed to you know six months or a year. So it's 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 really going to come down to the individual artists for sure. Um, and I think there'll be a lot more uh, connection with the audience on how that works and and why. I'm intrigued by that. I don't dislike that. I I, I mean I think sharing a band for artists that's you know can that certainly have been has been done before and perhaps could come back as a way, a cost saving measures, shared, shared backup band, shared crew, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, Kyle's favorite thing of course is making extra checks on the same show. So double dip, triple dip, diversify your bonds. And of course he would, he means by taking proportionally less. No, hell no. I'm not here to save millionaires money. Give me my money. You see how your way goes, flies in the face of what Corey and I are proposing? No. If I'm mixing two artists, I get two checks. Selfish motherfucker. Or I'll walk away (laughs) and let them do what they do. (laughs) Corey is designing a show for everybody. He's charging his money. He's not cheap. Why do you think he has platinum gloves? (laughs) Well, I thought he was saying that he was going to take less money to do. Uh, to do no, he's taking time. more money. Come on, See, Corey. Matt, say Matt, that? Matt and I have known each other for a long time, and he seems to always think I'm saying I will take less money, which I've never said in my life. But that's exactly. okay. It's the only way to go. Why try to make people save cheese? I mean, look at it like this: you, the money you're saving, you're saving on flights, you're saving on hotel rooms, you're saving on all kind of incidental stuff. But the performance is what it is. You still got to pay for that. So if one person is mixing three artists, then that's three checks. You're saving on three hotel rooms, three flights, bus space, catering. Per diem. You know, hey, I'm not one you save money on. I mean, you get one pair of white gloves to dry clean instead of three. So it totally makes exactly. sense. Exactly. <laughs> Your carbon <laughs> footprint is smaller. 
We have talked about sustainability. Let me ask you that, actually, Corey. That's that's actually an interesting question. Has Have you been asked to look for more sustainable means of designing tours? Is, have you ever been asked to consider the power output of the, the equipment that you're using or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, all the time. And even as simply as we want to use less trucks, you know, less fuel, um, and, and, and use that as a sustainability measure, you know, a carbon footprint offset, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, generators, uh, not only for cost, but for output, um, using materials that can be reused again, uh, if possible, or, or, you know, the biggest, you know, question is always rental items instead of built items, um, and, and trying to be as least customizable as possible. Uh, and it sort of ties it obviously ties in with cost, but it's also a, a mental thing of thinking about the environment a bit. Um, but certainly, I mean, everyone's, I think a bit cost conscious and environmentally trying to be as environmentally friendly as possible. Do you say everyone is, I, that's, that sounds very idealistic, but I'm not sure I agree. I, I like the way you're thinking, but Walk that back. Did did you just say you think everybody is trying to be cost or sustainable and I think, consider being? I mean, I certainly want to speak for the people I work for. If there's an option to be beneficial to the environment as well as costs, they're going to go for that. I will be specific and say they are more likely going to go for the cost saving option. Uh, but typically, it's it helps the environment in that sense of you know re- reduction of overall use is uh, is going to be good for anyone. I mean, no one's. Uh, trying to burn coal generators <laughs> instead of diesel. Uh, but the, uh, the the less number you're using, certainly the better, better off everyone is, both environmentally and financially. I appreciate that. I, I, I would say I think our president might like the coal option if you were to prevent yeah. that. And I, we're not a and I will go on record now as saying I have not and probably will not work for him. I, uh, I, I can appreciate that too. Well, Corey... You've been fantastic. We usually wrap these episodes with a series of, uh, of quick questions, and you can be as, uh, as brief in your answers, or you can take as long as you like. But tell us, what was your first tour? Uh, my first like arena tour was the Madonna Confessions Tour in 2006. So tours that predate... Arenas don't count. I mean, like the first like rock and roll tour, I really like uh, was involved. I did a lot of other shows, uh, you know, different types of programming, different types of lighting. But the first like pop star show. Yeah, I would say that was my first big one. I've I've actually been interrupted by Dallas just now who wanted to ask actually a really good question before I resume with the the short and simple ones. Dallas, please. I was just wondering um, in respect of the hardest gag or gig you might've ever had to create um, for one of your previous shows. What, can you tell us what that is? Um, that is a good question. Uh, they're all pretty difficult. Um, I think uh, one that, uh, well, gag or, uh, uh, let me think. The, one of the hardest days I had was on the, I was programming the, uh, Beyonce Miss Carter tour and we rebuilt the whole album the whole new album into the show for the first time and the did a like sort of dress rehearsal and then got a new set list that changed the entire thing around pretty much every song changed places and that took I worked for about 45 hours straight from the time I woke up to the time the show was the actual first show was over fixing that and that was kind of the hardest thing I did up until then um, 
but the uh, the show went fine, and then the next day we switched it all back. So it was uh, interesting, but that was uh, just one of many experiences like that that uh, I, I li- li- live to love and love to have lived, but don't necessarily want to do again. Good question, Dallas. So, Corey, what, what would you say if you had to choose one was your favorite tour? Um, that is a much harder question because they've all been really interesting. Um, I think the, uh, the first, uh, I'd say, yeah, I can't really pick favorites. I mean, I, I loved my experience, uh, on that Madonna tour, to be honest. I loved my experience, uh, throughout the Lady Gaga world, um, as she was exploding and we were all being risen and part of that. Um, but I loved my, uh, the first Bruno tour was really fun because, uh, I was kind of just me, myself and I, and, uh, and I was left there, uh, you know, at the end of the night with uh, just me programming, designing, uh, kind of coming with looks, working directly with him and, and kind of getting on the, you know, the same page, getting onto his aesthetic and, uh, and then running it for, you know, a couple of well, that year and a couple of years after we sort of built up after that, but it was a lot of fun. It was, there was no time code. There was, you know, very simple, cool cartoonish video looks and it was just music and he would change stuff every day. And, you know, he expected me to keep up with them. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So like that was one of the more, the more interactive and really dynamic shows that would just keep changing and keep being more and more fun. Nice. Can you identify one moment as yeah. as the best? Oh boy, um, I don't know. They're, they're all so many. I mean, it's uh, it's a tough one. I was think thinking, Corey, that. your your most favorite thought might have been when we were sitting in that restaurant in Paris after we completed that fun little thing we did. Do you remember that? Um, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it was after the HBO OTR thing. Oh, yeah. We had that incredible uh, dining experience. And um, I think we had a politician near us. I, I, I think so. Didn't we almost get robbed, if I'm not mistaken? <laughs> no, there was a lot of – we didn't get robbed because there was a lot of police presence due to the uh, U.S. Secret Service. I think uh, we actually fed the secret service. That's what we ended up doing. That makes sense. Yes, mm-hmm. that is very, yeah. yes. There's, there's been some, my, one of my favorite um, Christine Dallas moments is her bringing me a carrot cake and a bottle of moonshine at probably three in the morning on my birthday in the middle of uh, the stadium in Miami. And I said, I spent the rest of the night programming by myself, eating carrot cake, drinking moonshine. So that was a, oh, that was a, great, that's a, good that was a great birthday. <laughs> Excellent. Glad I could do that for you. <laughs> nice. Well, better than Dallas. Cryptic moment. Thanks for not sharing us with that's all about. So, Corey, we're winding down here. Uh, any advice that you'd like to impart on our listeners? Um, I, yeah, I think I, I sort of may always say this, but uh, you know, never say no to an opportunity, uh, good or bad. You pretty much learn something from every every chance you can. Uh, so, I, I, whether it's a, you know the, the biggest bar mitzvah in town or a stadium tour, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with doing a gig that teaches you something. And I think there's no gigs out there that won't teach you something. So um, keep trying. And if, if that's something you want to do, keep focused and, and never say no to an opportunity. I like that. Not sure I agree with that, but I like that. What if the budget is low? No, they say no. Yeah, of course, obviously. <laughs> okay. Any shout outs or parting shots? Um, no. Well, I mean, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I uh, look forward to staying attuned to future episodes. And uh, yeah, any, you know, 
This is awesome. Well, we appreciate you, Corey. You are welcome back. Uh, you really are one of the greats in the design world, and, and we're certainly uh, happy and fortunate to have you. Uh, appreciate your time. Appreciate your candor, your sense of humor. And um, do you have any socials that you can share with our listeners? Uh, I, I do. I don't usually check them or use them, but uh, I will. I think it's uh, we at the at Silent House one and the at Corey Fitzgerald. I think it's all one word. That's how much I use it. Um, but feel free. I'm always around somewhere. If you uh, can find me, reach out, and I will. I will be there. Well, there it is. Another working class hero in the can. Appreciate having him on the show. Some great stories. Some great experience. We, uh, we appreciate our listeners. We look forward to hearing your questions. You know where to find us at HLUB Podcast on the gram or at hustlelikeyoubroke.com. Always feel free to hit us up, DM us, email us, let us know your thoughts. And uh, we will be speaking to Jim Digby next. So we appreciate uh, everyone tuning in. Thank you very much. Good night.